everyone always asks sort of what's the end game and I was like oh, the end game is they're gonna put you in a box in the ground and until then I'm gonna keep doing stuff keep creating keep reinventing myself keep finding new things to interest me once your curiosity dies then you're gone so I have endless curiosity and I, I'm continually learning and and teaching and doing those things and I, I intend to keep doing that Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Andrew Scrivani is a photographer, director, writer, and producer who has worked on editorial, publishing, advertising, documentary, and feature film projects. One of the most prolific food photographers in the industry, Andrew has been a contributor to the New York Times for over 17 years. Andrew's images have been featured on over a dozen cookbooks, and his first book, that photo makes me hungry is available for pre-order and will be released in the fall of 2019. He's an executive producer for the film company Burrow 5 Pictures, the co-founder of Big Machine Films, and has recently completed work on his first full-length feature film, Team Marco. He's an educator at heart and has seven classes on Creative Live covering food and tabletop photography, business of commercial photography, and the move from stills to film. In this episode, Andrew explores the through lines of his multifaceted career. We learn how being a competitive baseball catcher evolved into his leadership skills as a film producer and director. We talk about creative ruts and reinvention, and the most surprising part of writing his very first book. Andrew reveals how he got his break at the New York Times, and describes what it was like to create food photography for a daily healthy food column, Monday through Friday, for over seven years. This is We Are Photographers with Andrew Scarani, and this is his story. Andrew Scarani, so fabulous to have you on the podcast. I'm super excited because you just announced, in fact, the time we're recording this, I saw it on Instagram yesterday, you just announced that you are releasing your first book. And congratulations, first of all. You've been involved in over a dozen other people's books with your photography, uh, but this is your first book. Tell me, why did you want to put a book together? Well, hello, and uh, thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. I'm excited to be here. The book has been a long time coming. Several years back, there was a editor that I worked with at the Times who asked me to write a book with her about photography. Her name is Samantha. And for whatever reason, the market just wasn't ready for us. It wasn't ready for a book on food photography. And we're talking probably around 2008, 2009. It became this kind of constant thought process about, well, when is the right time to write a book about food photography? And then several other books have come out after that, that I guess had marginal success in the marketplace, but they all felt like textbooks. They all felt instructional and a little bit pedantic 
And I did not want to write a book like that. And the other thing that I kept getting pushback from with publishers was they wanted me to include recipes. And I did not want to write a cookbook or any semblance of a cookbook. So after a long negotiation with my publisher, who I have some history with because they published Kate McDermott's books, um, I told them what I wanted to do. And they said, sure, we can do that. And I was like, really? And they said, yeah, we can do that. They gave me a lot of freedom. I got to pick the cover photo. I got to pick the typeface I wanted. I got to basically pick the title, uh, which those three things in and of themselves are uh, pretty fantastic considering my experiences with publishers and, and cover shots and all that, the science and the data analytics behind it. Uh, so they gave me a lot of freedom there. Uh, they paired me with a fantastic designer, a guy named Nick Caruso, who's designed Kate McDermott's books. And he had a blast with this because of the fact that it wasn't a cookbook. Which is awesome and rare. So that's mm. so we haven't even said the name of the book. So tell us the name and how you came up with it, because I think it's brilliant. Okay. The, na the name of the book is That Photo Makes Me Hungry. Uh, and really, it's born of the fact that of all of the comments I get on social media or people meet me or talk to me, they always say, your photos make me hungry. And one of the one of the best ones ever was, your photos make me hungry so much that now just seeing you in person makes me hungry. So physic my physical presence in the room was making people hungry because they were thinking about my photography. So I couldn't think of a better name for the book than that. Yes, the cover of the book, the chocolate. Um, what I find really interesting about food photography is, yes, it makes us hungry to look at that. But I feel like also your senses come alive more so than just like hunger. What do you find when you're sort of looking through the viewfinder doing food photography? What senses do come most alive for you? Oh, oh, clearly the, the sense of the, the sort of visual excitement, like watching light move across a subject or crafting light in a way that makes the subject look more interesting or graphic or even, you know, e even more delicious or whatever that is. But it's the overall craft of the visual sort of composition that gets me excited. So oddly enough, I'm in the middle of a shoot and I've been having to readjust a lot of the way I work with certain clients because they want a particular look, which hasn't always been the way I worked with my clients. A lot of times I got an awful lot of artistic freedom to do what I want to do. And then everybody was like, oh, that's nice. Even if it wasn't what the trends were telling them they should be publishing. But I feel like, like all photographers, at certain points in your career, you have to find that you have to do what your clients want more than what you want to do. And of course I'm spoiled and I, I was pushing back against that. And I was working just now and in the middle of the shoot, I changed the entire setup and I went back to my old setup, the, the, the setup I started with because I felt like I was struggling creatively just in that moment, uh, an hour and a half ago. And I broke it all down and I set it up the way I used to set it up years ago. And I got behind the camera handheld instead of on a camera stand or on a tripod. I went right back to my roots. And you know what? I took the picture I would have taken five years ago. And I felt really good about it. So sometimes even no matter where you are in your career, 
even if you're the guy who wrote the book on food photography, you still have to go back and kind of figure out the things that make you happy, that excite you, that make you engaged and make you want to create. And I, I, and, and I realized today that I had to do that. That's so interesting, Andrew, that that just happened. And first of all, thank you for taking the time to be on with us uh, during your shoot. Uh, But we're always having these revelations and learning. So let's talk a little bit more about going back to your roots. Tell us about when you first got into food photography. It was was interesting. It was um, 2002. And I was still working full time as a teacher. And I was spending a lot of time with my friends who were involved in photography. And I met a couple of editors. They knew I was sort of an amateur photographer at that point. And I got a couple of sort of news assignments that were not exactly the choice assignments. Like one of them was in Staten Island, which was my hometown. And it was harder to get photographers to go out there. So I took a I took a shot of an ice cream parlor that I actually grew up going to. So that was really exciting for me. I wrote about that in the book as a sort of an, an opener to the idea of how I got interested and connected to food photography. And that sort of led to other assignments in the dining section. And at the time, the dining section was growing and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with the recipe photography. And that editor who hired me knew I knew how to cook. So in the first couple of years of doing the studio work, I was basically cooking the food myself, plating it, styling it, collecting props on the weekends. Uh, I was sort of a one-man band for at least a couple of years. Um, And that sort of was the beginning of both my career in food photography, but also this sort of shift in food photography from um, classic still life strobe lighting to daylight shooting with digital cameras and that was sort of that help that technological leap definitely helped me in my career because I did not have to I think I shot my first two assignments on film and the remainder I went right to a um a 10d I think it was it was a Canon 10d and that was my first digital camera and the and that sensor was awful and it the file sizes were small but they did the trick and then Shortly after that, the Times went into full digital mode, and I was in the middle of it. And I I just kept getting assignments, and I got a chance to get better and better uh, as I was there. It's so interesting because there's no, like, formula as to everybody has these different paths uh, that that take you to, you know, to getting that particular gig. And then – so you did a column for – Tell me how many years and like every single day, right? Yeah, I did um, the Recipes for Health column by Martha Rose Shulman, which was in the health section of the Times. I did it every day for seven and a half years. Wow. So we published five new images a week um, around, year round for seven, for seven and a half years. So, And that on top of all the work I did for the Melissa Clark column, and then all the random other pieces and parts that I picked up along the way. We did some cookbooks. We did some advertising. But that stretch of my career from 2008 to 2015, I would venture to say I was the most prolific photographer in the business because I don't know of anybody who was publishing that much. Absolutely. What was one of the hardest things about that volume of work at 
such a high level? Well, I, I think it, it really comes down to time. Uh, I really had no time in my life. Uh, I took my camera gear with me everywhere I went. So if I was on vacation in the south of France, I had a kit with me. And I brought props and I brought things that I was going to need because they called me at the moment's notice and said, we need this. And I would have to produce it because there was nobody else at that point. So that, I think, was the most challenging part. And then creatively, to do the the healthy food that we did and to have to consistently figure it out. Because basically, the way the column worked was it would go through seasonally with the ingredients that were available. So every season, we'd do corn. Every season, we would do tomatoes. Every season, we would do broccoli or whatever. And the recipes were always sort of like, a soup, a salad, a frittata, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of protein. So making vegetables and salads and, and things like that look good and different over and over and over again. I think that was the, uh, another like major challenge of, and I think why the column ultimately sort of petered out at the end was that we did it all. There was, there was nothing left to do. I mean, it was like remarkable how much we did. So we just kind of exhausted the the format. Let's talk about the evolution of your career because you not only uh, are releasing your first book, but you also are a filmmaker now, a producer, a filmmaker. Uh, I want to hear more about your feature film, Team Marco. It it absolutely has nothing to do with food. Um, although there is a scene, a dinner scene in the movie. Um, so and there's a guy eating a bagel at one point. So there's a couple of things that have food in them. But um, T Marco, I have a really exciting announcement about that. Is we just were accepted to the Mill Valley Film Festival, which, if you know, is a pretty prestigious one in uh, Northern California. And Green Book, uh, a movie that got some Oscars last year, also debuted at Mill Valley last year. Congratulations. So, That's awesome. So, so we're super stoked about that. We're really happy. Um, we have a, so, so many other projects in pre-production right now. We just finished production on a short film called Ten Shots, which is a little different. Uh, Team Marco is a family film that's sort of a family comedy drama. Uh, we we kind of describe it sometimes as... Uh, the Sandlot meets Little Miss Sunshine. It's kind of a heartwarming family comedy drama. Ten Shots is a violent eight-minute no-dialogue thriller, which is really an interesting shift for me and for us as a, as a filmmaking group. But the, the script was so strong uh, that we decided to take it on as a project, uh, as a production company. So the two companies that produced uh, 10 Shots are Borough 5 Pictures, which is uh, a collaboration uh, a company that I'm working with and for, uh, and my own company, Big Machine Films. So 10 Shots is, uh, was directed and written by Gordon Shoemaker, and it's basically about a hunter who goes out into the woods for his hunt, uh, gets up in a tree stand, and as he's scoping through the forest, discovers a hostage situation and has to start to make moral decisions about life and death uh, right there up in that tree stand. And it, it all happens without any dialogue because all of the characters are separated by 100 yards. So it's a pretty interesting film. Uh, the, the script was really strong. We feel really great about how it was, um, how it was shot. It's beautiful. So it's, uh, it's exciting. So we got that going. Uh, that's going to go out to festivals starting in August. Are the challenges the same or when you are approaching sort of this whole new subject matter, how 
was that hard for you or was it exciting because it was something brand new? I think it was more exciting than I, I never felt challenged like, oh, my God, I can't do this because my background is in literature and I and I studied literature at a really high level and I've been writing for a really long time as well. So stepping into a role as a storyteller, particularly in the way I've taken photographs and the, even the things I've taught on Creative Live about storytelling it just felt like a natural evolution of what I've been doing. Plus I've been directing and, and doing television commercials. So this kind of jump into production on that level, creative production uh, felt really normal and natural to me. And I, it gets my juices flowing. It sort of revitalized me in a lot of ways. Plus I'm working with people I really love and I, I, I love spending time with uh, 16 hour days sort of go by really fast when you're with people you like to work with and care about. So that all of that felt like a really natural progression for me from the kind of storytelling I would do in one picture or a book to now the kind of storytelling that's translating to the screen with visuals. It felt like a really natural, you know, sort of evolution of what I want to be as a as a creative. You're just embracing it all. I love it. Uh, I like I like the fact that I get to work with a team because, you know, as I as my photography career progressed, my teams got bigger. And then I went from a team of like maybe 10 on my biggest photo projects to directing projects where the team is like 15 or 20 and then up to a film project where I've had 80 or 100 people. So it, it just the, the scale just kept growing. And I accepted that I'm good in a leadership role, whether I was standing in front of a classroom coaching a baseball team or teaching a creative live class to thousands of people online or standing in an auditorium, it all felt the same to me that as a, as a mentor, as a, as a leader, as a, as a teacher, um, all of these things are connected and my style doesn't change. So as much as the subject matter might change or the format might change or the people and, and, the, and the project and the goals might change, my leadership style stays the same. And the people around me have put a lot of trust in me and basically know that I, I'm the guy who steadies the ship and keeps things moving. And I do that, you know, in a, in a more fatherly way than as a, as a boss. And I think that would always be my style as a teacher. So it's been my style as a producer as well. I want to go back to baseball. Ah. Let's talk about baseball. And when did you start playing and what does baseball mean to you in your life? Well, you know, just about a couple hours ago, my dad was trying to call me and our phones weren't connecting for whatever reason. And he called me like eight or 10 times in a row to try to get me to connect. And rather than give up, he just kept calling and calling and calling. And I knew why he was calling. He was calling me because the Yankees won this crazy game last night, 14 to 12 in extra innings. And he wanted to talk about it with me. So baseball is something that's sort of in my core. I, I started playing as a five or six year old. And I played competitively in, in men's leagues, baseball, not softball, until I was 40. So um, I played college. I played in Division One and Division Three college baseball. I was being scouted by several major league teams as a catcher. But I was also a little undersized, and I was also a little bit injury prone. So those things kind of prohibited me from playing professionally. But I played and coached, and it was a big part of my life and has influenced my leadership style my entire career. Tell me more so, about that. Well, I was a catcher. So if you, if you pay attention in Major League Baseball, a lot of catchers become managers because you have to be sort of the field general when you're out in the field. And you have to basically call every pitch. 
position all the players, communicate when the ball gets put in play, talk to your pitcher, be a psychologist. You know, you'd have to do a lot of the things that uh, I found myself doing in the rest of my life. Uh, I learned sitting behind home plate calling a game. And I think that that is a universal thing because a lot of guys who did that job uh, ended up in the major leagues as coaches or, or managers. Uh, so the skill set translates. So the leadership of uh, in a sports environment, particularly at a position like catcher, um, I think translates really well to the real world and is, has, has served me very well. What was the hardest life lesson, perhaps, that you, you had to learn through baseball? Oh, God, that's easy. Failure. Because you're the best player on your team and you fail seven out of ten times. That's you're the best guy on the team and you fail 70 percent of the time. That's baseball. So uh, when you when you learn that you learn to take joy in what you do because you're not always going to have success. You learn to understand failure as part of the process um, and you learn that you cannot be dejected by it because in baseball in particular, you go through prolonged slumps. Everybody does. The best players do. The worst players do. Everybody goes through these periods where you can't perform. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's physical, it's emotional, it's, it's, it's mental. And you learn that that slump is going to end. And when the slump is over, you can get back to normal. But realize that we have slumps in everything we do. And like I'm, I'm talking about, I was talking about one earlier on this pro- program, right? About how I feel like I was in a bit of a slump. And now I feel like I'm starting to come out of it because I feel like going back to my roots helps. So baseball taught me all that. Baseball taught me not to take the downs too seriously and the highs too lightly. You got to take them all in stride. When you add that team layer, you put more pressure on yourself. And so that's right. The idea that uh, you're responsible for other people and that by being a more responsive teammate, boss, leader, coach, director, producer, whatever it might be, that you're going to get more out of your team. And when you get more out of your team, your personal success grows the same. I've had that approach with my team here in my studio. I've nurtured and and built a team that I trust and they trust me. And I know that we can work together without any problems. And that's because you pick the people that you know you can work with. And then you show them your best side so that they trust you. And then you, you, you have successful relationships that way in the workplace. You've done so many different things and accomplished so much. Does success look the same to you today as it did when you first started? Yeah, I, do. I, I think it does because I, I, I measure success not by how much money I've made or how many you know, projects that I've completed or how many things I have my name on but about the relationships that I've built in the process and the fact that I have some of the same relationships like the one you and I have, right? A professional relationship that has gone on for several years because of the company that you work for and, and my relationship with them. I have these long involved sort of complete relationships in my professional life that I, I value. And I think that's the measure of success is that people respect you, you're, you're considered good at what you do, but you're also considered a nice person. Uh, I think that's always been my measure of success, and I think it always will be. Uh, creatively, I don't really find that 
success has any limits. Um, creatively, I feel like you're only as good as what you've done today. Uh, and I think that's why I've been successful by everyone else's measure. But as far as I'm concerned, it's really about what's going to happen tomorrow and not what's happened yesterday. And the idea is that there's lots of people out there who have created and done a lot of really important things in our in the art world, but a lot of people think they're jerks. Uh, I don't think that's successful. I think, you know, money and, and credits are one thing, uh, and they come and go, but relationships you will have hopefully for the rest of your life. And when you're gone, you hope that the people remember you as somebody they like to be around, not just somebody who took a nice picture. Well said. I want to further go into this connection as humans, because bringing it back to food, what do you think is the importance of food to cultures, to communities, to relationships? Well, I think I think it's our first point of contact with new cultures. You meet people's food before you meet them. So you can tell a lot about people by their food, but also the idea is that sometimes we don't have an opportunity to travel to certain places and meet certain people, but we get to experience their food. And I think sometimes that is that that opens the door a crack to cultural understanding is to appreciate someone's food. And then when you actually meet people from a particular culture and you know something about their food, they know that you're interested in the world. They know that you're more complicated than just um, the, the basics. So I think that it's, it's an opportunity for all of us when we experience food to experience culture and, and show our curiosity about the world and show our curiosity about other people. Uh, that's always been my thought in terms of how I try to take pictures of food too, is that if I could be culturally sensitive to the, the people who make this food so that when they see the picture, they say, oh yeah, that looks like my food. That guy took time to understand that as Thai people, we don't use chopsticks. We eat with a fork and a spoon. You know, uh, that's that kind of cultural understanding of things that you learn through food. What is something that unexpected that you learned, I want to go back to your book, uh, putting the book together. Uh, I think I, I, I didn't think I could write long form. I was really nervous about writing long form. Um, I, I studied poetry in school and short stories and I, I always wrote articles and essays and trying to write something long form really scared me. Um, until I thought about what Karsh taught me about the first creative live class. Because I, I used the, 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 the basis of the book was off the model of what Karsh helped me develop for the first course. Because I never thought I could fill 18 hours of content on Creative Live. And I was freaking out about it. And he was like, you're not filling 18 hours. You're filling six or you're filling uh, 12 90-minute blocks with breaks. So, and you have this person and that person and this and and we went over the outline and i thought about it the same way i was like oh i can write long form because all i'm doing is writing a whole bunch of little stories and i'm just gonna stick them all together and so that i think that was the most unexpected aspect of it it was that it was so much easier than i thought it was going to be because the idea of filling that much content uh was a bit intimidating what else did you learn about the book or what was the most exciting thing the most exciting thing for me was reliving the stories. Like 
going back in the archive and pulling the pictures and remembering making that shot or going back and telling a story about something that was meaningful in my career that I might have kind of forgotten about and now I've immortalized it, you know? I, I, that was really exciting to me to sort of c do a compendium of what I've done to this point in food photography because, you know, it was a huge part of my life for such a intense period that it was really nice to take uh, a step back and relive it a little bit and, uh, and, and take it in and appreciate what uh, I was able to accomplish uh, and the kind of things that I've done and the relationships I've built and uh, the work and, and being able to revisit it all. It was, uh, that was really exciting. Who is the book for? Uh, the book is for a lot of people. I think the book is for people who want to learn about photography. I think it's about people who want to learn about what it means to be a creative. Uh, I think it's about it's for people who want to look at beautiful pictures or hear funny stories. But overall, I think it's for people who want to understand what uh, my story and how I became successful is their story, too, or it could be. Uh, not the details, but the ethic is that um, you work hard and you be nice and a lot of good stuff can happen, but there's no substitute for hard work and there's no substitute for being nice. I see a theme, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think that you go with your, you chunk out your life too, right? You chunk it out and you understand the things you do well and you understand the things you need help with. If you can have that level of self-awareness to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, um, then you can probably achieve a lot more that way where do you see yourself in another 10 years uh are you are you in it to win it in the film industry is that was that where you're headed well i don't i don't play the game unless i intend to win so um i'm still very competitive in, in everything i do and i feel like film is bringing me a lot of joy right now um so i, I intend to take it as far as i can take it Everyone always asks sort of what's the end game. And I was like, oh, the end game is they're going to put you in a box in the ground. And until then, I'm going to keep doing stuff, keep creating, keep reinventing myself, keep finding new things to interest me. Um, once your curiosity dies, it, then, then, then you're gone. So I have endless curiosity and I, I'm, I'm continually learning and, and teaching and doing those things. And I, I intend to keep doing that. That's a beautiful way to end because I think curiosity is truly the key to creativity and you follow what you're curious about and that just leads to creating and discovery and again also what life is about. Thank you so much, Andrew, for Absolutely. taking the time in the middle of a shoot uh, to join us and share your stories and your insights. Um, where can people follow you and find all the different things that you are doing? Um, I, I'm, I'm most prominent on Instagram. Uh, my, it's my full name, at Andrew Scrivani. Uh, that's the same on Twitter. It's the same on Facebook. Um, uh, also on YouTube, I have a, a channel. Some of my creative live stuff is there. If you know how to spell my name, you know how to find me. That's pretty much it. My website, all my all my social, it's all just my name. And where's the best place for people to pre-order or order your book? You can go on Amazon.com and you can put in the search engine, that photo makes me hungry, or you could put my name and it'll pop up and it's available for pre-order. You get a little bit of a deal right now. I think it's around 17 or 18 bucks. Uh, down from 25 and it will be at your doorstep on Black Friday I believe 
Thank you so much again, Andrew. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Kenna. It's really, really nice to be here. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. Be sure to check out his mouthwatering images on IG at Andrew Scarani and follow all things Andrew Scarani on his website, andrewscarani.com. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, we've got a class or two or thousands for you to check out. Just head over to creativelive.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live everywhere. Thank you again to Andrew Scavani, and I'll see all of you next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.